All right, I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. If you would be turning in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15, we'll begin in verse 21 and we'll finish the chapter this morning. Um, It's been an interesting thing for me this week as I've been studying this passage. I've preached through the gospel of Mark before when I was a chaplain at the rescue mission. It took about a year and a half and I actually preached through this section in much smaller chunks. And so that was, it was very interesting to take it as a larger chunk because I saw some things uh, together that I did not see when I preached it uh, separately. And so um, it's been a, a sweet time in the Word for me this week, and I hope that will translate to you as well as you hear uh, from a passage that has um, some great hope for us. Uh, oftentimes when we, as pastors, preach the crucifixion, we get into the graphic details of what crucifixion is, but Mark barely even touches on the crucifixion. He just says, and Jesus was crucified, and he just seems to move on, so to speak. He deals more with Jesus being mocked on the cross and the response of some people that, as you might remember, as we've talked about the gospel of Mark, he seems to be very interested in showing that those who are thought to be outsiders are actually those who will become insiders in the kingdom of God. And so we're going to see this morning uh, the response of some people who would not necessarily have been welcome in the kingdom, but instead when they see the crucifixion, they are moved to some sort of confession of belief. And so one of the powerful things about this passage is that it shifts from the failings of the disciples. Remember, so far Mark in the Passion narrative has really pointed out again and again the disciples' inability to save themselves, which we have tasted of, I'm sure, all too much ourselves. And it has also highlighted how much Christ has endured. So I do hope that you will feel some of the weight of what Christ has endured for us um, so that we would not have to endure the full weight of what he has endured, especially the wages of sin, which are death. And so, as we look at this passage this morning, um, I will not be giving you the grotesque details of crucifixion. If you would like, I'm sure you can find that somewhere on a Good Friday service and would encourage you uh, to go and, and find somewhere to worship either Monday, Thursday, or Good Friday. There's a number of churches in our presbytery that will have services. We won't because we don't have a permanent location, and so they rent this out for other things. And we will see the beauty of the resurrection next week as we have Easter. And then we'll also, the following week, talk about the Holy Spirit, which oftentimes gets lost in the discussion of Easter. But one of the great things that Christ does in his death, resurrection, and ascension is provide something very powerful for us that never leaves or forsakes us, which is the Holy Spirit. And so we'll be talking about that uh, the following week after Easter. All right. So, uh, as I am uh, want to often do, I have a hard question just to start. Um, and I, I don't want you to forget the question that I asked you a couple of weeks ago, which is very important for us not to move on from. I, I asked you if uh, any of you had ever been betrayed, and almost every hand in the room went up. And then I also asked you if, if you'd ever betrayed anyone, and almost every hand in the room went up. And then I pointed out, uh, why in the world would we try to form community among a group of betrayed betrayers? How hard, how hard is that unless Christ has done exactly what he said he would do and provided all that we needed to be able to dwell in community together, right? I mean, you see the impossibility of that. If we, Because we know we, we, we struggle to trust one another, which is uh, one of the things that we would love to see here at Christ Community Church is us grow in the ability to be honest with each other so that we get the help 
when we need it. So often we get called in for what I would deem the post-mortem. You know what that means? That's after the body's dead, instead of being able to go in and do work before death occurs, right? Uh, and I'm using those in metaphorical terms. They don't actually call me in to do, I'm not, that's, I don't have those skill, that skill set. So, I, although I have watched CSI once or twice. Um, and so this question that I have for you, I think is equally, has the same kind of gravity that that, that question had. And it's, um, have you ever felt forsaken or forgotten? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands for this one because I, this is a hard question. Let me, let me give you a little bit of context for it. If, if you've ever in any way, shape, or form struggled with feeling less than or feeling like you don't measure up or struggling with depression or struggling with your worth or struggling in any way, shape, or form um, to feel like you matter in this world, you have struggled with feeling forsaken or forgotten. And think about in a room full of people who are betrayed betrayers who's, who've also tasted of the sting of being forsaken and forgotten, how in the world could we ever hope to have a healthy relationship with one another? If not for the person and work of Jesus Christ and the gravity uh, of the situation in and through him, right? If, if he is not who he says he is, just hear me, then we have zero hope at all. There is no hope for us to ever dwell together in full unity. Now, you may be thinking, because again, I was a radical anti-theist. I studied Zen Buddhism. I love to say things like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? My response is to put my shoes on my head and walk out of the room. Right? That's how you should respond. There should be total silence because that's meaningless. That's not going to help you in any way, shape, or form. Deal with if your parents have ever forsaken you. It's not, that kind of stuff is never going to actually help you if you've ever tasted of the betrayal of any relationship at all, right? That doesn't solve anything, except maybe get your mind off of it and cause you to go, what in the world could that mean? Which may give you a break for about 35 seconds. And all of the other philosophies of the world and all of the other kind of humanistic ideas they just don't provide the balm of Gilead that Christ alone can provide so that we can dwell with one another in true peace and true unity. And not just dwell together, but accomplish things that can change this world. Amen? It's not enough for us to just receive the crucifixion. That's why the resurrection is so important. And one of the things I've always struggled with as a Christian is feeling like at times that as Christians, we are um, so cross-centered that we become neurotic and actually kind of self-abusive instead of moving on to the resurrection, the ascension, and the eventual return. So I think that's one of the reasons why Mark doesn't give tons and tons of details about the crucifixion in his gospel is he doesn't want the um, us to get tangled up in those details. Instead, what he wants us to see is the power of the cross and how it can deliver us. So if you have ever felt forsaken or forgotten, what impact has that had on your life? It's had a, if, if you're honest and confessional, it has had a dominating impact that affects everything. People can say, to, think about it from this perspective. How many of you remember far longer a critique versus a compliment. So if that's you, if you remember the critique far longer than the compliment, then you have tasted of what it's like to be forsaken and forgotten. 
And I would suggest that we are not yet walking in the fullness of what Christ has redeemed us from so that the critique should be quickly forgotten because it does not have the final say. No way, no how does it have the final say. And that's what we see in the cross is that we don't have to cry. Why? Why have you forsaken me? And we'll see even in the table the promise that we have not been forgotten. Think of how sweet the words of Jesus as he is departing from them when he turns to them and says, I, I will never leave you nor, what's the word he uses? Forsake you. Why do you think he uses that particular word? Because he tasted of the forsakenness of separation from God for a time on our behalf. So as Mark continues the Christ narrative, um, we're going to see yet another couple of sandwiches, actually, of sorts. There's two. One is the response of the people around the mockery of Christ. So this is actually a reverse of his normal sandwich style, which is to put the, the um, best part in the middle and the difficult parts on the outside. No, this time he's going to put the difficult part in the middle with the better parts on the outside to illustrate that Christ is absorbing it. He's turning things upside down. He's changing things so that we would not walk in forsakenness. What a gift for those of us who honestly recognize that we have all tasted and seen that that is not good to be forsaken. It is not good to be forgotten. It is not good to have resources when you're struggling. The number of people who struggle with various forms of depression is astronomical. And yet, how often do we, when we find out, say, I never knew they were struggling. Think about one of the most probably devastating in our context that is very quietly shoved under the rug because maybe in part it's some of our theology. Postpartum depression. Does everybody know what that is? That's once someone has a baby, they really struggle chemically. It's not a choice, by the way. No one says, I see. I think I'll check off postpartum as part of my post-pregnancy, uh, you know, reasoning. No, they don't. And yet, and yet many, many struggle with it and feel unable to say anything about it because how can you as a Christian struggle? Especially, especially with the gift of a child. I've raised teenagers. It's easy. Trust me. You can struggle. Um, and so, so just, I just use that as a silent example. There's many others, whether it's fertility or job or family or singleness. How, how much have we caused and marginalized our single people into thinking that somehow they are less than and they're not worthy as much of God's love as someone who actually finds a mate? Think about how that makes them walk in this forsakenness and how much more could we do to help set people free because we recognize the necessity for no one no one to walk in forgottenness or forsakenness maybe there's those who struggle silently with sexuality issues of any and all kinds would that the church would be the place to be able to have those kinds of discussions without feeling like immediately if you say this you will be branded you will not be heard, and you'll be cast out. 
Woe be unto us if the way that we treat those who are hurting and searching and seeking and asking questions, even if we don't like the questions, and even if we don't like some of the answers they've concluded at age 16. Uh, A lot of stuff I believed at 16 turns out it ain't true. (laughs) It ain't true. And I don't still believe it. So how could we walk with people through some of these things, recognizing that to love them and to and to be a place of, uh, of, of actually showing the person and work of Christ in and through our transformedness, instead of feeling like we've got to solve everything at once and clean everything up so we feel better about it. Would that we could walk in some of the hard places like Jesus did with the kind of confidence that he had, but even more so because of what he's done for us. Amen? So if you would, turn to the text. Let's begin with... Mark 15, 21 through 32, we're going to look at Simon's service and Jesus' crucifixion. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word this morning. And they, being the Roman soldiers, compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his, being Jesus' cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he, being Jesus, did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers or insurrectionists, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So the first person that we come upon is Simon the Cyrene. Now, who is this man, and and why do they give so much detail? Because if you know anything about the Gospel of Mark, one of the things is he doesn't often give this level of detail about people. So Simon, what we know is that Simon the Cyrene was from North Africa. Now, does that mean that he was a dark-skinned African? Probably not, because he was coming into into Jerusalem for the Passover. So he was more than likely a Jew from the diaspora. That means from when the Jews had been scattered. And why does Mark give so much detail? Well, so that people would know exactly who it was that he was talking about. Rufus, it seems, is also mentioned in Romans chapter 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 13. And so By virtue of this man participating in the carrying of what would have been the cross beam, which would have weighed about 30 to 40 pounds, had become a believer. He and his children. And now was known to the church, right? And so this one who had been scattered, this one who had been cast to one of the far nations, is now one of those who are inside, no longer outside. 
And so Mark wants to make clear that we know who this Simon is because Simon was a fairly common name. So he wanted to make sure that we knew exactly who he was and who his boys were because this situation had transformed his life. Now, why couldn't Jesus carry his own crossbeam? Well, as Matt shared with you all last week, he underwent scourging and probably had endured a significant loss of blood. And if you've ever been beaten, I don't, no show of hands here, uh, it takes it out of you a little bit. And it makes it hard to carry 30 to 40 pound objects that are very rough and heavy. And so Jesus was, was beginning to feel the, the weight um, and the brokenness of what he had endured. And so he, he was unable to carry it, but Simon was brought in to carry it for him. I want you to notice uh, there is the fulfillment of several passages here that we actually read. That's why we read all of Psalm 22, because there's much of Psalm 22 that gets fulfilled here in these passages. So when they're casting lots, that's spoken of in Psalm 22. And the reason they were casting lots is because he probably had a very nice tunic that was all one piece, and, and it was common for them to do that for things that mattered. So it wasn't just rags that Jesus was wearing. There was some reason for them to want the things that he had. But most importantly, it was because God had ordained it. That it would signal to those who were looking on, wait a second, something is happening here. And even their mocking, you must understand, is the fulfillment of Scripture. Remember in, in, in Psalm 22, one of the things that we read, it said that they would look up and mock him and tell him, save yourself. Now think about this for a second. What if... Christ had gotten down from the cross. What doesn't happen? Death is not conquered. And we are not saved. So yes, maybe they would have believed had he climbed down from the cross, but I can assure you, had he climbed down from the cross, it probably wouldn't have been to shake their hands. And so what they were calling for is actually their own destruction, not knowing exactly who he was, and, and really not even knowing the Scriptures. Think about how gracious God is to give them so much fulfillment of the thing that they should have known. They should have known Psalm 22. They should have seen it coming true and known who this man was. And yet they were blind. Though they had everything at their disposal to help them understand who Jesus is, the thing they didn't have was faith. And they didn't have faith because they wanted what they wanted for themselves. They wanted a God created in their own image Here's where you and I have to be so, so, so careful. How many of us have formed God in our own image? How many of us have transformed Jesus into what we want him to be, negating the parts that are a little more difficult or a little more uncomfortable and sanitizing him? I've heard it said, if your God only hates the people you hate, it is not the true God. And so often, we don't like to be challenged. I see that again and again and again. We, we hate being confronted. We hate being, because again, remember, what do we remember more than any sort of confirmation? Critique always lingers with us. And we see any sort of challenge, any sort of being told, nah, you may not be right about that, or that may not be the best decision, or that actually is inconsistent with Christianity. We don't like that. Because we want to be able to decide for ourselves as if we individually could be the whole body. We can't. And so, what we have here is Simon doing for Jesus 
what Scripture foretold would be done. We have the casting of lots. We have him being mocked on the cross. And again, the gravity of the mocking. I love that we sang how deep the Father's love in the line where it says, I can hear my mocking voice cry out. The passage is always very moving to me because I, I have mocked Jesus. As a radical anti-theist, I mocked Jesus something horrible. And I remember in particular, and I think I've shared this before, there's a thing that, there's one thing that sticks with me I wish I could take back. I say one, because I told you the story about trying to get my pregnant wife to be fired. That's terrible enough. Um, So there's a bunch of stuff I wish I could take back. But this one related to this. Let's just kind of narrow it down. There was a, a situation at the mall where uh, a local youth pastor had brought a bunch of the local youth and turned them loose to share the gospel um, or pass out tracts uh, to the unweary Chick-fil-A and Chinese food eaters in the food court, right? And so I could see them coming. And, uh, and so I started to sharpen my teeth, and this poor kid comes up, and he's 14 or 15, and he is scared to death, rightly so, uh, I was probably not very welcoming in my body language or facial expressions. And as he came up, I ripped him a new one. And I made him cry, and I dressed him down in front of that whole food court. And then I turned, and it was easy to pick the youth pastor. And I said, don't you dare send another lamb to this slaughter. Get him out of here before I get angry. Now, praise God that I'm the one Uh, that has to now have that sometimes thrown back my way. And praise God that he loved me enough that that was not where I was going to be left. And praise God that Jesus died even for something to me. And don't hear me wrong, I get that that's horrible. I get it. I don't like sharing that with you. I'd like to share better sanitized stories with you as well. I'm just not that sanitized. And so what I want you to hear is that I am so thankful that the Lord, one day I hope in heaven that that young man will know Christ and come up and say, I didn't think you were getting in. <laughs> and I will say to him, there is fruit from your suffering, young man. There's fruit from your suffering. And so Jesus is enduring mockery, and it does pain me that my mocking voice has cried out too many times against him. And know that the charge against him, the king of the Jews, that too was mocking. So the whole scene was just this great mockery. The whole reason that they, that they crucified the insurrectionists. Now, why do we know they're not just common robbers? Well, John speaks to the fact that they were insurrectionists and the actual Greek word is not the one that's common for robbery. And the kind of robbery that it would have been was, would not have been capital punishment worthy. But insurrection was, and remember in Mark 15, he spoke of the insurrection that had broken out, of which Barabbas was one. Now, these two men were probably part of that. I wouldn't die on that hill necessarily. But they were crucified on his right hand and his left. Why is that significant? Because he thinks he's a king. He's an insurrectionist. And it is supposed that his cross was probably a bit higher than theirs to further mock him. Because when they go to give him the vinegar, it has to be on a longer pole. So the whole scene was mockery, you understand. And that pains me that our Savior would have to endure that much because we are so hard-headed that we we need that. 
And look at what that fulfills from Isaiah 53, 12, where it says that he would be counted among the transgressors. And in this passage, it says that they were both reviling him. We know from other texts, there is one actually who will make it into heaven, who calls and says, what must I do? I want to be with you in paradise. And Christ says, today you will be. What an amazing thing that even as Christ is being crucified, he's still doing what he was called to do. It's powerful to me. Listen to what David Garland says about this passage, New Testament scholar. I love the way it ends. He says, the cross reveals the truth about humankind. Right? What, what truth does it reveal? Mockers, we are off. We would, we would torture. T- think about it for a second. You've crucified the man. What more needs to be said to him? Why the necessity for further mockery? Is the crucifixion itself not near enough? No. That's how how broken we are all the way down. Unless you think, that's just just patriarchal power. Mm, No, there's queens who've done it too. We're all that left to our own devices. Let's not be arrogant ever to think that we are not, that we would not go that far. That our brutality knows limits. No, it doesn't. It just doesn't. And so this mockery, this, the cross reveals the truth about humankind, but also about God's incredible power. God's power takes the venomous mockery spit out at Jesus and turns it into a proclamation of the gospel. He saved others but he can't save himself. God's power absorbs the toxin of human sin and hatred and turns it into salvation for all who put their trust in a God who loves this much and who works this way. The gospel is the only thing that makes sense of a world so ugly and so beautiful. hard not to look around our world and see exactly that last statement, so ugly. Why would terrorists in a country that has welcomed them, like Sweden, jump in a truck and mow people down? Why? Why use tear gas or some sort of chemical on children, as was done in Syria? Why do we have to go that far? Why is this world at times so ugly? And yet, the weather has been beautiful and the dogwoods are in bloom and there is hope just from creation itself. It's going to be in the 80s for the next week. So ugly and yet so beautiful. What hope do we have if Christ is not who he says he is? And so I would ask you, what are some ways in which Christ's crucifixion makes the crosses that we are to take up daily less burdensome? Do do you consider, I mean, because I've I've also wrestled with that passage, take up your cross daily and follow me, right? He says it earlier in the Gospel of Mark, and we've all wrestled with, what does that mean? That sounds hard. That sounds burdensome. And yet in another place he says, yet my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Again, you've got to go comparative, Right, compared to having to bear the weight of your sin and and death. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So how does what Christ endured 
through this whole passion process, how does that help you see the taking up of your daily cross as truly far less burdensome? Now, that requires us to meditate on it, right? That requires us to consider what does this mean? What, what is, what's going on here? And we're not a people who take much time because life, I'm, and I'm with you, life oftentimes feels like this swiftly rushing stream and you're being pushed ahead so quickly that you don't have time for hardly anything. But there are things that we make time for. And this should be one of them. And praise God that there's a season within the, the calendar of the church that gives us an opportunity that at least, if you're not going to do it much, at least you get to do it once a year. Which is why we take the time to do this every year because it's a hard thing to meditate on. But I do want you to see that because of what Christ endured, there is so much that you and I don't have to endure anymore. Even if you feel the weight of it, it's not the full weight of it. Even if you're still struggling with guilt and shame, if you're a Christian, it is not the same weight as if you try to do it without it. My prayer is that we all would see in and through the crucifixion of Christ what he truly has purchased for us all so that we could walk in newness of life. Yes, we will struggle, but the struggle doesn't have the final say. No, it won't make us the happiest people in the world, but it'll make us the most real. And I think that's more important, isn't it? For a world who is desperate for authenticity and desperate for people who actually have some sort of creative solution to the, the problems that we are just overwhelmed with. Let's turn back to the text and look at verses 33 through 39 and see Jesus forsaken in the Roman centurion's confession. And when the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way, he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, from the sixth hour, when the sixth hour had come, darkness falls for three hours. Now, this essentially is from about noon until three and the darkness that falls, you need to understand, is that there was no possibility scientifically for there to be an eclipse because it was a full moon. That's when they would have the Passover. And so this is supernatural darkness. This is something that would not have just come about. And you need to also understand that this was God's judgment falling. On whom was it falling? On Christ. This is critical for us because I think that many of us struggle with the idea that at some point you're going to come before God and you're going to be judged, right? That there's some sort of like trapdoor loophole plan that you missed in the Bible and because of the things you've done, it really ain't going to come to pass. No, this says that judgment supernaturally and biblically fell upon Christ and Christ alone. 
And it was the wrath of God being poured out for the totality of our sin which caused him to say, the beginning of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now notice what he said. My God, my God. He was still clinging to the relationship that he knew from Gethsemane. Remember, as he wept in Gethsemane and said, may this cup pass from me, but not my will, God, but your will be done. So even in his forsakenness, he is clinging to the relationship that he has had with God. And remember what it said in Psalm 22. How quickly it moved if you saw, from my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And feeling forsaken, he says, and yet you have delivered and redeemed your people time and again. Trusting that somehow, some way, even in the midst of the falling of judgment, that he would be delivered. And he's offered this sour wine yet again. First time he rejected it. Second time it was rejected. They said, wait, let us see if Elijah's going to bring him down. He was fulfilling his promise. If you remember from Robbie's sermon when he said, I will not drink of the cup or the vine again until the new heavens, new earth, the new kingdom comes. Even the thing that could have helped him endure this narcotic mixture or that would have satiated his thirst in the second case he rejects even that. He says, no, I made a promise. And I will keep that promise all the way through. I will cling to my God, my God, and feel the full weight of the forsakenness on your behalf. Now, the reason that they thought he may have been calling Elijah is they may have misheard that Eloi, Eloi, and thought he was saying Eli, Eli, which would have been short for Elijah. And it was also kind of a folk tale that Elijah was supposed to come again uh, which is a, a bit of a misreading probably from Malachi. Um, and so, so it, it was an understandable thing that they would have thought that he was saying that. But that is not who he was calling to. He was not calling for man to save him. He was calling for the Lord, his God. And so as he's bearing the weight of this, and darkness falls in judgment, as it says in Amos 8 and 9, there's also the rending of the curtain in the temple. Now, there is some discussion about which curtain this was. Some believe it was the curtain to the Holy of Holies, which would have signified the letting God out. Let me ask you, do you think a curtain could hold back the Lord our God? So even if it wasn't that, that's okay. That's not a bad idea. The other was that it would be the curtain that separated the women and the Gentiles from the inner court. And that it would have torn that in judgment of the separation. Either way, it was God pronouncing his judgment on the temple and the tearing of the curtain and saying, you have separated. Now think about how Paul picks up this idea. You've created walls of separation either between me and my people or my people and my people. Either way, they must all come down. They must all come down and they all come down in the broken body of Christ. It was signifying that no more would there be separation. In Christ, the separation was being removed. And praise God for that. And as the Gentile soldier, the Roman soldier, is beholding all of this, he becomes the first to announce what is a wonderful confession and need not be just seen as something offhand or throw away. He is the first to say, this, this crucified man who just died is the Son of God. 
Think about that for a second. The first who would declare that was one that participated in his crucifixion, was a pagan to the, to the core as far as we know, that he would be the first to have the pleasure of declaring confessionally, whether he knew the full weight of that or not, this, this man was truly the Son of God. That one who was so far out could find himself so far in. Now listen to what Mary Ann Tolbert says, um, and this is a, a slim volume that she has called Sowing the Gospel. She says, the content of Jesus' cry from the cross, his expression of abandonment by God, stands as an assurance to his followers that the worst desolation imaginable, cosmic isolation, can be endured faithfully. What is separation from family and betrayal or denial by friends in comparison to that timeless moment of nothingness when God's son is deserted by God? I take umbrage with her word deserted there, but we can do that, right? Um, I don't think that God deserted him. He turned away from him. He let him feel the full weight of his wrath without his comfort, but it was not desertion. However, her other points are salient, that if Christ could remain faithful in what is the single darkest moment in history, it's important that we recognize it was a moment in history, not a myth or a fairy tale or fable, but this moment in history that he could hold firm in his faithfulness, what assurance do we have that he would cling to us in our unfaithfulness? That he would cling to us and provide for us when we are struggling and when we are broken and when we are bowed. That he would give us an example of how to endure betrayal and forsakenness, which we have all tasted of. Praise God for his willingness to remain faithful all the way through one of the darkest and most painful situations the world has ever known. So I would ask you, what impact does Christ's forsakenness and humiliation on the cross have on your life? I circle back to the first question because we all admit that our forsakenness, our forgottenness has impacted us all, right? We live with it on a regular basis. We struggle to relate with each other because of it. We struggle to relate with our families because of it. We struggle to trust anyone because of it. We struggle to hear comfort. We struggle to hear compliment. We struggle with all kinds of things as a result. And yet, how might it shift if we spent even a, maybe a tenth less of the time we spend on all that and put it toward meditating on Christ's forsakenness and humiliation on the cross and what that affords us. And is this something for which you are regularly giving thanks? Are you regularly thankful for the fullness of the person and work of Christ? Francis Schaeffer in his book, True Spirituality, says that one of the, one of the most devastating hallmarks of unchristianity or failed Christianity is ingratitude. And I think that that's a, a true statement. The more that I go, the more that I see that those that I deal with, those who, are, who, who lack gratitude, they struggle significantly. Now, that's not the only way that people struggle, but it is a very common one. 
And in counseling someone, if I see an attitude of ingratitude, and yeah, I don't know that I meant to rhyme that, but it just worked out, um, it is a difficult thing to, they're not going to hear anything else I say. What actually has to be changed is whether or not they are thankful even to be alive. And they're thankful for any of the good gifts that God has given. And it changes us significantly as we grow in gratitude. And I um, was deeply affected. Don't throw stones for what I'm about to say. And Voskamp's book, the, the first one, was it 10,000 Reasons? I don't remember the name of it. But I was deeply moved um, by Ann Voskamp's, uh, how she wrote and how she talked about gratitude. I read it at a particular time in my life when I needed to hear it the most. And I think she's, done, she's actually done a fantastic job of, of describing that and playing that out and has spoken on it a number of times at the Q Conference and other places. But we, we struggle we struggle to have any sort of thankfulness for the things we have. Think about how, how is this current generation referred to? What's the big key word that gets thrown around about the current set of college students and high school students? They are entitled, right? Which totally endears them to us, by the way. Makes them want to talk to us. Makes them want to hear what we have to say. You bunch of entitled punks. As if we weren't. Were we not? We were too. And maybe they're a little further down that hole because we didn't deal with our junk. Maybe we failed to do what Psalm 22 called for us to do, which is to actually share with the next generation the truth of who God is and the need for gratitude for who he is. Maybe we have set them up to fail because we haven't dealt with the thing in our own attic and closet. So how can we do that? How can we do that without gratitude? We first have to have an understanding of what Christ has done and purchased for us. Let's turn back to the text and finish 40 through 47 and look at Joseph's risk and Jesus' burial. And when evening, uh, no, it started too far down. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now, this is the second sandwich, and the sandwich involves women being present in these things, which you need to understand in this culture would have caused some to question the true nature of the story. Because in this culture, you didn't trust the testimony of women. We've gotten past that, right? I'll pause and move on. So what Mark is again doing is showing that those who are considered outside, unworthy, and marginalized 
are actually those who will be inside and testify first. Think about it. You've got a Roman centurion that's already the first one to say, surely he was the son of God. And now you've got a group of women who know where he's laid, and if you know anything about how Mark's going to end, it is going to end with them being told to go and share the resurrection story. And so, in between that, we have this story of Joseph of Arimathea, and it's fascinating because he was a member of the council, which is a, another word for the word Sanhedrin. Now, what did the Sanhedrin do in this story? They are the ones who call for the kangaroo court who got Jesus crucified. Now, we don't know if he was there, if he participated in that. Maybe he didn't because he was a man who was looking for the kingdom, but he's Interestingly, still a respected member of the Sanhedrin. And he took a great risk. You've got to understand, is he family? No, he's not. So for a non-family member to go and ask for the body of one who had been crucified, especially an insurrectionist who thought himself the king of the Jews, what in fact was Joseph saying about his relationship with that man? He is like family to me. He is identifying himself with one who'd just been crucified. Now, don't you think that would make Pilate a little nervous? Or someone else begin to question, Joseph, what is your, what are you doing here? Maybe they thought that Joseph was doing it to ensure that the believers wouldn't come and grab his body and say he'd been resurrected. Maybe they mistook why he took Jesus. But still, he laid him in his family tomb. Couldn't he have put him somewhere else? So Joseph here is taking a great risk that he never took while Jesus was alive. We don't hear anything from him during the kangaroo court. But now, Joseph is emboldened by faith to step in and ask for the body of Christ because it would have required a special dispensation on Pilate's part. It would have raised suspicion. But notice what Pilate's most concerned about. Not why Joseph wants the body. He goes, he's dead already? Huh. I need an eyewitness. Centurion gives witness, bears witness to the fact Jesus had died. Again, emphasizing that Christ decided when he would breathe his last. Christ gave up his life for us. His life was not taken. You understand? And so here we see the move of God as we have seen so much in the Passion narrative that the sovereign God is moving to answer uh, the Old Testament scriptures that spoke to this as well as to control the events that are unfolding in history. Let that not be lost. Because remember, what is it that Jesus is actually doing in being crucified? reconciling us to God. He, in being forsaken, is ensuring that we can be restored to relationship with God. Remember, you are not being saved from God, you're being saved to Him. It is God who loved us, who sent Christ, and ensured that history would play out in the providential way that it does so that we could be redeemed. Don't miss as much as we see the love of Christ in all of this that you would also see the love of the Father. That is why we sang how deep the Father's love for us. 
It's also why we sang before the throne of God above. Whose throne is it you actually come before? God's throne. Jesus sits at the right hand. John Calvin, I won't read the whole quote, but I love the very last sentence. As he talks about Joseph, he says, Let us know then that when the Son of God was buried by the hand of Joseph, it was the work of God. So my question for us, as these women also are risking their reputation as well, I don't want that to be lost here. They've been traveling with Jesus, and notice what the disciples understood, and I'm sure they knew as well. If they're going to crucify Jesus, then what is the fate of the followers? Will they be received as next? No, they will be persecuted and stamped out as well. How dangerous it would be to continue to hang around and be known. Notice how quickly Peter gave up. Servant girl comes and says, hey, aren't you one of the ones that hung out with Jesus? Now, why would he deny Christ if he wasn't fearing for his life? And yet these women, Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of James and Joseph, Salome, who may have been the mother of James and John, who begged to sit at the right and the left hand of Christ. They continued to hang about. They were not afraid to be identified. Notice the faith of Joseph of Arimathea who goes and risks everything. You've got to understand this could end incredibly quickly and incredibly poorly for him. And yet, he calls and asks Pilate for the body of Christ so that it would be properly dealt with. My question for us is, are you willing to risk your reputation and how others view you because of your association with Christ. Now, this is not the first time in history, in culture, in our country, that we've been at a place where to say you're a Christian is growing in, in terms of laughability, right? So if you say you're a Christian, uh, what, what's the likelihood that you will have a place at the table in the, in the secular university? is going way down. What is the likelihood that you're going to be invited to actually give some sort of reason response on the Bill Maher show? Probably not good. Uh, what is it that, 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 that most people say as far as like, we, we operate under this presupposition that we're on even ground. We're just talking about things on the same plane. No, we no longer are. We did for a season because of the whole moral majority thing, but even before that, this, this ship was in the same condition. Did you know that C.S. Lewis was kept out of Oxford? He was not allowed to, to teach at Oxford because he was a Christian? See, if C.S. Lewis can't make it, then you and I are probably in trouble as far as secularity goes. So the question is going to grow and grow, Right? So whether or not you are willing to risk your reputation, maybe even the loss of a job, do you, can you imagine what it would have been like for C.S. Lewis, who loved all things medieval, to be able to teach at Oxford? And he had to go to that lesser podunk college called Cambridge? Because God provides, and God goes with his people, and C.S. Lewis didn't hurt for one second over not being accepted at Oxford. Well... I shouldn't say that on his behalf. Ultimately, I don't think he hurt. And are we willing to be identified with Jesus 
Are we willing to offer what we know to be the true means of grace in circumstances where there is the opportunity to actually offer means of grace? It was interesting this week at the church office, our staff was talking about um, what, the, what the true Christian life looks like. And you may be thinking, well, if y'all ain't got that figured out by now, why are we listening to y'all? That's a good question. And so as we were talking about it, one of the things that we noted was how amazingly present Jesus was in any and every circumstance he was in. He, he just had this amazing ability to be fully present and aware of what was going on in the people around him. So as we're having this conversation, the front door opens. And in walks this young lady whose boss has just died. And she tried to, to bring him back with CPR and was unable to. Now, he's got two young children, and she's weeping. And she says, can I get y'all to pray for me? And I said, no, we're having a staff meeting. <laughs> get out. No, that's not what I said. We took time to pray with her, and then she invited us later that day to come and pray with the rest of the staff. Now, what you need to know about this place is there's, they don't all believe in Jesus. But they were hurting. I've never seen the kind of hurt they were going through, just kind of, Offhand, it was, Robbie can tell you, it was, it was a difficult place in which to stand because we all went together. It was kind of this, did we all go together? Like, what do we do? And so we all just went. And we've had subsequent conversations and may have even more opportunity to share Christ. But again, I know my own tendency. There's times when people are hurting. If I know they're not Christians, I offer them the balm of the world because I don't want them to think I'm weird. And I'm a pastor. And yet, what we ought to do is not be willing to risk our reputation to love people who are hurting, to take the risk to say, yes, I'm praying for you, even if they spit back and say, don't waste your breath. Pray all the more. I was one who would have spit back and said, don't you waste your breath. You ain't got much. You shouldn't waste it on one such as I. And so, my encouragement to us as we arcing toward the resurrection next Sunday, Easter Sunday. Don't forget the weight of the cross and what Christ has endured. And yes, he will rise to newness of day and a dawn that has changed all of history. Let us not forget what he endured so that we would not have to bear anywhere near the kinds of burdens that forsakenness and forgottenness and mockery bring with it. So Mark 15, 22 through 47 teaches us these three things, that Christ's crucifixion makes it possible for us to take up our crosses daily. Because of what Christ has done, we can live out the Christian life. Two, Christ suffered forsakenness and humiliation on the cross for the joy of rec our reconciliation with God. And three, our association with Christ can oftentimes be costly. J.C. Ryle puts it beautifully. Let us leave this passage with a deep sense of the enormous debt which all believers owe to Christ. All that they have and are and hope for may be traced up to the doing and dying of the Son of God. Through his condemnation, they have acquittal. Through his sufferings, peace. Through his shame, glory. Through his death, life. What a wonderful way to transition to the table that he has given us to do in remembrance of him so that we would not regularly forget 
what he's done for us in the cross and in the resurrection. What a beautiful symbol that he has given to us that these very common elements speak to something so deep and so cosmic and so large that we would have the opportunity to uh, remember afresh that in his broken body is the removal of the totality, past, present, and future, of our shame and our guilt and the associated wrath of God. Praise God that he also grants the cup of the new covenant which says you're not just back to zero. You're not just a, a blank slate who has to figure out how to go it on your own now. No, I will give you all that you need to walk in newness of life and that is represented in the meager contents of this cup. 